0: I don't see any professional or personal risk to me saying that because that's based on my journalistic values. It's based on the evidence that I can see. It's based on the conversations that I'm having. It's based on the work that I'm doing. I don't even feel like I'm making that political point. I'm just saying, look, I as a journalist have been covering this for a really long time and this is what I see. This is my take on it. And I don't think any of the publications that I work for would disagree.
1: If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hey Emma, thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? Uh, You're very welcome. I'm doing very well, thank you. So we connected. It was a while ago. You had written a post on Twitter, which, in my opinion, just really set out a balanced argument about kind of what is going on regarding reporting in general practice. And I was a bit like, oh, I'll just message her and just see if she responded. And you did. Can you actually before we jump into that, if you tell um, our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm a freelance health journalist and I've been working as a health journalist for 20 years. I work mainly for the specialist titles, so Pulse, BMJ, some of the Lancet journals. I do some stuff for Nursing Times, Pharmaceutical Journal, tends to be the sort of medical trade press or medical journals. I was a health reporter at BBC News online for a while, so I do have that kind of experience of more mainstream reporting and I teach journalism at Sheffield Hallam University and Derby University. And I run a a, co-founded an organisation that provides resources for
1: freelance journalists as well. So yeah, that's me. (laughs) That's me in a nutshell. (laughs) Just a a few things there. (laughs) Um, But yeah, if we go back to that post, you'd written a post. There's so much, it feels like so much negativity at the moment and you'd written a post. Could you kind of talk us through that post and what the impact was on you when you did that?
0: Yeah, so that had come... Obviously, so I I do quite a few shifts for Pulse. So in doing those, and I also worked for their PCN supplement as well, doing the cover feature. So I'd had a period where I was speaking to GPs a lot every day, all day. I have friends who are GPs. And I just knew that the situation that their workload and the situation that they were facing every day when they were going to work was just really exhausting and desperate. Like you could hear the exhaustion in their voices. And even though, so contacts, like people that I'd, GPs that I'd spoken to for years and years and years, who were always kind of the innovative ones, the upbeat ones, the forward-thinking ones, they were also feeling just really kind of doom and gloom. And people that you would normally be able to contact really easily, just too overwhelmed with work to even speak to you at any point. So I kind of, I knew that, you know, been been reporting on general practice since 2003. I've, you know, been through all contract changes and everything. And I just knew that this felt a bit different somehow. I'd also done a lot of reporting for Pulse on this issue of the portrayal of GPs in the media. So I'd done a big feature that was published earlier this year. We did a big investigation into kind of how the narrative of GP access had changed in recent years. And we I did a big analysis, kind of identifying loads of new stories and kind of trying to take a systematic approach to it. And it just felt like things had changed for me. And I just didn't understand. There just seemed to be this sort of collective blindness over why general practice had moved from, moved to remote consultations initially. You know, I was reporting on those COVID spreading events in those general practices back in March before we'd shut down. And the fact that kind of remote technology was something that the government had been pushing for a long time and GPs had resisting. I just felt that the narrative that had kind of lost its way. And instead there was this talk about GPs being lazy, refusing to see patients. Yet the data was clear. The data was really clear that the number of consultations being done was huge. And Within that consistently, it was sort of between 50 and 60% were face-to-face and the rest were remote and no kind of talk about what was appropriate, not appropriate, whether that was actually a better mix for patients, none of that, just we demand to see our GP face-to-face. And I just knew that GPs were just, you know, drowning under this, the, the sea of demand. So I think I'd had quite a bad end of the week, the week before, where there'd <laughs> been a um, Piece in the Daily Mail, I think was really widely shared and criticized at the time that were criticizing GPs for deaths of women in labour, like they had anything to do with it, and this report didn't mention it. So there was that. And then later that evening was the Manchester GP, that GP practice that was attacked, and a contact in Manchester had told me that, kind of sent me a message saying this has happened before that was in the the press, and I just thought, look this is getting really dangerous. So when I woke up on the Monday to the Daily Mail sort of campaign about GP access, I just I was like, right, I feel like I need to just make some really clear points here about what's happening. and it's not that there isn't a problem. It's that we need to think about what exactly that problem is. It's a demand versus capacity problem, and it's been in growing for years and years. GP has been warning for a really long time that the workforce is, we just don't have enough GPs and, you know, instead of growing GPs, those numbers have been shrinking because of people leaving the profession. And, you know, why might that be? So it was just sort of a 10 point thread, just kind of laying out, yes, the the system's overwhelmed, you know, but when you see ambulances queuing outside hospitals or you see waiting lists that have got, you know, their highest ever levels, you don't blame those individual doctors or those individual paramedics The blame is the system blame. The NHS is failing. Something needs to happen. The NHS isn't coping here. Whereas that narrative when it comes to GPs is very different. It seems to be very individualised. GPs specifically are to blame. And so that was the that that was the gist of the, the thread that I wrote that I wrote as I woke up in the morning very quickly while I was trying to get the kids ready to school and just thought I need to just send this I'm glad I did proofread it a bit before I <laughs> press send because
1: yeah, I think it just
0: went mad I couldn't physically use my Twitter for a few days because people with very big Twitter followings were kind of retweeting me and flagging it up saying like this is the actual situation so yeah my Twitter was a bit unmanageable for a few days but I think I seemed to hit a nerve
1: well, can I just say, thank you for responding to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was one of those people. I thought it was just, yeah, when I saw that, I just, I think people, lots of people would have kind of clapped and thought, thank you, you know, like, thank you. And I was having a conversation with somebody else and saying there's multiple truths. Some things are not accurate at all, but there isn't an issue. And some patients can't get to see their doctor. It is overwhelmed. None of it's false, but it's how it's, packaged yeah so
0: I think I was trying to get across the point that I'm not kind of stood here saying everything about general practice is perfect yeah. and every patient who needs to be seen is being seen at the speed at which they need to be seen I was kind of trying to point out this another example of the system that's overwhelmed and by focusing on quite specific kind of areas of it such as we demand everybody seen face to face not only is really demeaning for GPs who are really the clinicians who need to decide with the patient what's appropriate seeing face-to-face and it's not really even measurable how do you measure whether what proportion of face-to-face versus remote appointments is appropriate I don't know the jury's out on that there's lots of discussions to be had I think I just wanted to make the point that there are problems here and journalists need to be uncovering these problems but this isn't the way to do
1: it this you know you're shouting at the wrong people Mm -hmm. Do you think because you're independent, you're freer to write that sort of tweet, but does that, is there a risk in doing that or does it not, you know, like you can do what you like because you're kind of self-employed, but you do work within the industry and you are well-known?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't see any professional or personal risk to me saying that because that's based on my journalistic values. It's based on the evidence that I can see. It's based on the conversations that I've having. it's based on the work that I'm doing. I don't even feel like I'm making that political point. I'm just saying, look, I, as a journalist, have been covering this for a really long time and this is what I see. This is my take on it. And I don't think any of the publications that I work for would disagree with that, you know. So
1: I wasn't afraid to do it. I wasn't. So you mentioned your journalistic value. So what are they? What is really important to you when you are producing work that goes out into the public domain?
0: That I've asked questions and not just accepted what I've been told I mean obviously sometimes you're writing breaking news really quickly and the government has put out a press release but that's an information if you're you're providing an information service on look this is the government's latest statement opposition on this but yeah that I've asked questions that I am listening to people and not prejudging I think what I think the situation is or what I think they're going to say a lot of what I do, I was just teaching a group of students at Plymouth University this morning on uh, data and investigations in health. and a, a lot of what I do is based around data and figures and evidence. And uh, my first degree was in science before I did a journalism. MA. I think that's just my my approach is quite analytical and logical, I think. I, I want to I, you know, I want to know why something's happened, where it's come from, how many people are saying this, or you know if it's a study how many people are, you know, how reliable is that evidence? When I first came into health journalism, it was sort of around the beginnings of the MMR scare. So I've kind of come, I've been sort of brought up in journalism with thinking about risk and communication and reliability of evidence and data. And I think that's just really informed the kind of work that I do. And the publications that I work for expect that as well. Why did you choose health? So I always had an interest in medicine. But I didn't want to be a doctor. So I did biomedical science was kind of quite a broad, I could do lots from kind of pharmaceutical stuff to microbiology to biomedical science. It was a really broad degree. So because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, I was just interested in it. I realized that I couldn't work in a lab after I did my dissertation and found it so tedious. (laughs) I was still interested in that, I was just fascinated by medical science, basically. So as you do when you're 20, you just say, oh, I'll be a journalist then. So, and then I can write about it. So it was originally kind of more science stuff that I was interested in and did a journalism master's. But my first job was then at a medical journal, doing editing of scientific papers, doing a bit of news, bit of commissioning. And I just, in the end, I thought, oh, this is a bit boring. I kind of want to be writing news more. I want to be in investigations. I want to be working as a journalist you know, having not started out really thinking much about it, started to just kind of love that process of journalism. And that's when I went to work for Pulse. And that was such an amazing training ground. As a clinical reporter, kind of having space to do proper investigations, break stories that, you know, have then ended up being picked up by the nationals. And they just really expected high standards. So yeah, it taught me a lot doing that. But yeah, I sort of fell into health. And actually, a lot of what I do, COVID notwithstanding, is not that science. It's a lot of it's more about kind of health politics and economics and yeah, organizational restructures and things that I'd not really know much about or considered that I would be writing about initially.
1: Have you ever written a piece that's just been interpreted in the not the way that you would want it to be, which has caused an issue, which has caused um, an impact?
0: So I mean, I've always been proud of the journalism that I've done. I mean, more so when I was at the BBC, because the reach is so much bigger, you get a lot of, you know, well, you clearly have not read this paper. You don't know what you're talking about, government mouthpiece, you know, whatever, whatever. But you know the work that you've put into it. You know the people that you've spoken Mm -hmm. to. You know that you're across it and you know just that you're doing a good job. Your job isn't to make everybody happy. There was sort of a a medical blogger at the time who once took a disliking to an article that I wrote and in a very swearing ranty blog, <laughs> had a go at me, said I was a self-styled health reporter, which was quite funny because the BBC gave me my job title, not me. But again, I was like, well, you didn't speak to me. You didn't call me and ask me any of the questions that you had about the piece. So, you know, you're kind of doing down your own argument. I just laughed it off. I thought it was quite amusing. That's- I just be confident in your process. I think.
1: So from what you see, what do you think is the impact of this negative press that just feels a bit relentless at the moment? Something has changed. It seems to be just ramping up and just things all the time. Like what, yeah, your friends, your confidence, your kind of sources, what are they telling you? What How is this making them feel?
0: Yeah. I mean, you will have some GPs who just don't ever look at it. They're not on social media, they don't read those publications where the kind of criticism is the m- most prevalent. So they, they just try to ignore it and get on with their day job. And you know, GPs, this has always been a kind of issue for GPs. I think people's relationship with their GPs and probably that extent to journalists too is quite personal. So if you feel like you're not getting the service that you would like, that the coverage of that can be quite personal, I think. I think it's different now in terms of the impact that it's having on people because this is a profession where the morale is at the lowest that I've ever seen it. So when your morale is that low, and I know so many GPs who I feel are actually close to burnout. I know GPs who've had to take a period of time off because, you know, they've worked for GPs for years and they've never had this before. And they just reached a point where it was either take a little bit of a break and try and recoup or just walk away from the profession i think if you're already at that level and you just feel like you're firefighting and you feel like you're not doing the best for your patients because you can't because the demand is so high and the circumstances you're working in are outside your control we're in a pandemic that's not nobody asked for this that when you start to get those attacks and some of them some of the articles definitely do feel like attacks. I think that must just be so morale sapping on top of, because you're already feeling so so low and that you're working so hard and to have that not recognized and to, to be accused of being sort of lazy and not doing your job when you know the opposite are true. I think, yeah, and I think that is having um, a big impact. I can see it's having an impact on GPs who previously wouldn't have paid any attention to what the media discourse was about general practice
1: so it is a pleasure to be bringing the business of healthcare podcast in partnership with dkms uk dkms are a blood cancer charity on a mission to find a blood stem cell match for everyone who needs it i am proud to share that i am an ambassador for dkms uk and my particular interest in partnering with them is that as it stands, fewer than 3% of patients from a black or mixed ethnic background are on the stem cell blood registry. We need more people to sign up to the registry and more people to spread the message. So I hope you will join me in doing so. To sign up to the registry, please visit www dkms.org.uk to get involved This, this is a really big question but do you think those news outlets that are notorious writing the negative stuff care is it just about how many people read it yeah do they care that there's people on the end of this and actually they're very powerful very influential news bad news travels really fast
0: So, I mean, I think you'd have to ask them, but I think, well, there's a couple of things. First, I would say that I would, there is a difference between sort of opinion and editorial and news. Quite often the news stories, when you're, if you look past the headline and read the news, can be fair, balanced, have lots of different opinions. I think they would say that their readers have raised concerns about this. And so they're speaking up for people, for the general public who have concerns that they can't access their GP. But they're clearly coming at it from a different perspective as I am because we're looking at the same data. But, yeah, I think papers would say, well, we're just reporting it as it is from their perspective. And like I say, I wasn't coming from the point of view that everything's rosy at all, but my argument was there's a system problem with capacity and demand in the NHS and the amount of workload that GPs have just slowly been taking on over years, as well, plus we're still in a
1: pandemic, and none of that was really being um, acknowledged in some places. Do you only ever talk to GPs because it's it's the general it's general practice, not just the GP partners? So the GP GPs are always cited in the press, and that's it is what it is, but it's not, it's practice managers, it's the nursing, it is a team that all feel this. So when you go for your stories, is it just GPs that you talk to?
0: It depends on I'm writing for. So no, not just GPs that I speak to. So I do speak to practice managers, usually if a practice is involved in a story and you need to go and get a comment from the practice, you would go to the practice manager. Um, I speak to clinical pharmacists quite a lot. So I speak to other G members of the general practice team, but yeah, so it it depends who you're working for. Your editors would kind of guide you. They don't, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for Pulse, it's more likely to be a GP, not necessarily a GP partner,
1: okay. um, but a GP comment that they'd be looking for. Is the antidote to negative press, positive press? And the reason why mm. I ask that is because it's, we get told a variety of sources, we need to be putting out more positive case studies, more positive case studies. that might be so we probably don't talk enough about the good things but I think it's how much good stuff do we need to share to be able to counteract you know like one really negative piece
0: yeah I mean I don't even know if it's just about putting out positive stories necessarily or just talking about the realities so there was a video that was put together by a group of GPs in Sheffield that was shared widely on social media you may have seen it basically talking about the realities of their day-to-day work and what that looks like there's various gps who've worked with organizations such as the bbc channel 4 news independent i think i've seen some stuff various kind of videos out there of look this is what a day looks like and it's not necessarily positive it's just here's the here's the reality yeah of what of what we're dealing with News organised. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm not as interested in positive stories. They're not necessarily as attention-grabbing. But at the same time, I think it's more about showing balanced stories as well. So when you see, there's been some really good pieces, say Victoria McDonald and Channel 4 News did a really good one. There's been some really good long articles. Sky News did a really good data-driven one talking about the workforce and the shortage of GPs and how those workforce problems have come about compared with the number of people that are trying to get a GP appointment right now and what GPs are dealing with and how that's changed since the pandemic because there was also this narrative of all the pandemic's over now so why isn't it just back to normal putting aside the fact that the pandemic isn't over just why, why it's changed and it's all kind of interconnected stuff to do with hospital waiting list been really long and he's caring for those patients when they're on hospital waiting lists and you know access in other places and mental health problems related to the pandemic so there's all kind of things that have changed so yeah no no, it's necessarily about positive stories but just sharing the reality of what's happening but also I suppose sharing ways in which if you've managed to innovate and do something to improve your patient access, different systems that you've put in place. I know GPs have tried different triage systems and different ways to support their practice receptionists, for example, kind of trying to share that work to show we're not just sitting here and if you can't get through, you can't get through. We are trying to adapt. We have adapted loads in the pandemic and we're still trying to adapt and we don't necessarily know the best way, but we're working on it. I think those messages go a long way to changing the narrative of two years ago, I could see my GP and now I can't. And so it's the GP's fault.
1: How do you kind of grow your kind of black book of sources? Cause I've been in lots of conversations where someone will say a journalist has contacted me for a comment and like, don't, don't talk to the journalist. Don't talk to them. So how do you get different voices and not the same potential, you know, like innovators and your friends, how do you get a really broad spectrum as you, as you develop your career?
0: Yeah, so I am conscious of that because you do end up going back to the same people because you know they'll talk to you because you've built up that relationship and they trust you. But that said, because for every article that you're working on, you're looking for someone in a certain specialty or looking for an example of someone who's doing something a bit different. You know, you might be contacting a local medical committee, but their members change, so a new person will come Mm -hmm. through. Recently, I've been doing a lot of work around PCNs, So I've got loads of new contacts there because you're kind of looking for PCN network directors and teams and I'll go to the NHS Confed. So they've kind of put me in touch with a load and I have contacts at think tanks who've been talking to those who are doing the most innovative work and they'll suggest people to speak to. Sometimes making that first connection is hard because they might not want to speak to the press. But I think working for the specialist titles helps because I think they might have more trust that you're on on their side
1: I think we discussed when we first met, are there any like top tips for managing the negative press? You did mention, you know, like some people just don't read it. You know, like. that is an option. You don't have to engage with it at all. Because I think what happens is, what I see happens is something will come out that that person will be really triggered and then they'll copy that link into the whatsapp group you know like and then there's this big forum around what is being discussed and they go into their work it bleeds into their day then they go home and it bleeds into their home life so there is something that we can it's not just the pressure i have to consume everything and magnify it if it makes you feel like crap
0: yeah so social media is quite bad for that isn't it we can all doom scroll a bit And I do that too. And then I get myself wound up, whereas actually I just didn't need to engage with it or see it. I have seen GPs sharing, again, not positive articles, but articles that are much more fair representation of the pressures that they're under at the moment. So you could kind of share what you feel is kind of more fair journalism, I suppose. So, yeah, you don't you don't have to engage with it and read with it, read it and share it you can just get on with your day-to-day work because you know even what people are saying below the line comments on articles on national newspapers which you should never read anyway they're not your (laughs) patients are they they're not your like you should really care about what your patients think about the relationship that they have with their practice rather than the wider issue unless you're particularly interested in medical politics or leadership and there's another reason why you need to get
1: engaged in those discussions not everybody has to but in that instance so if practices are focused rightly so on their patients when the press comes out and your patient kind of you know phones up and said oh, i just read this in this paper and you should be doing this are there any tips that you can offer around that because it's one thing to not read it but other people are reading it and bring that to your attention
0: yeah yeah that must be really hard I'll say that yeah. first off you know the number of GPs who've said to me that they've had a patient in their consultation room who said when are you going to start seeing people face to face again with no sense of irony at all <laughs> okay. like that's not just a one-off so many people that has happened to <laughs> and I think you know sometimes they'll share that because they just genuinely don't know, how to <laughs> don't know how to respond to that yeah I mean I think again you don't necessarily have to get into a big conversation with them about you know about any specific coverage or any specific articles I'd again bring it back to a conversation of what their (laughs) practice how can I how can I hear you how How can I help you today (laughs) how can I help you is there a problem that you have with accessing us can we provide you more information signposting advice and just don't even go down the line of trying to kind of count you know you were involved in the article so why are you trying to defend it just talk about what that patient needs from you there and
1: then i suppose do you think this is just hope it's just a face <laughs> and it will bottom out or do you think with the latest industrial action and the bma kind of inviting people to disengage from the uh, the des do you think we're still in it for a bit of a rough ride for now or do you think, can you see that, how have you seen other trends like this where there is a peak interest in, in the healthcare sector and then it dies down and something else happens? It feels pretty, this peak feels like a long time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't see the interest in any sort of NHS health story disappearing anytime soon. We're at the start of winter and where we're already seeing kind of the massive pressures that the NHS is under. And I can only see that getting worse over winter. And quite rightly so, that's something we should be reporting on. And yes, the industrial action is another way in which that story is going to continue and is going to continue to be reported on. I have seen some positive signs in that while there has still been a lot of coverage about this, and of course there's a lot of coverage about this because the public want to know that they can access... The NHS and their GP, if they need them, it's really worrying for people to to think, well, what happens if a family member or myself kind of really needs a doctor? What am I going to do? There's more recently, I think there's been a lot more fair reporting, I would say. So earlier this week, there was a kind of more holding to account of the government over workforce planning and the fact that they're going to miss their target for the number of extra GPs so it's kind of that awareness that oh right it's because we don't have enough staff so even if it the coverage is continuing 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 I wouldn't necessarily see it as a a bad thing because as as a country we need to have those discussions about what we expect from the NHS what it should be able to offer and what we need to do to get there
1: And kind of back to you, what do you love about journalism? What keeps you doing it and that you've kind of diversified your income? You've got a podcast, you've got a course, you're doing your teaching. Like, What about this sector, this industry do you love?
0: Yeah, so I'm doing lots of different things these days, but the majority of my income still comes from journalism and I can't see a time when that isn't the case. just genuinely really enjoy it. I really enjoy asking questions, finding out, what's happening, speaking to people, asking difficult questions as well. You know, people aren't always going to like everything that you're reporting on because that might not be their experience or they might feel, you know, they might feel it's a bit unfair if you've done some kind of critical reporting. I just think it's really important and hopefully valued. I think it's all too easy to criticise the media as this kind of big homogenous mass. And um, we're really lucky in the UK that we have such a diverse and large media. And I think there's lots of different places you can get your information from. And yeah, I would champion that until and the day I die. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I know obviously you're students, so I'll be, you know, that will ask new questions, but from podcast host to podcast host, what is it like kind of being on the other side?
0: Yeah, I quite like it. It's fine. Yeah. It's nice. As you know, I could talk about health journalism all day, every day. So Yeah, I don't mind giving up my time to chat away about that.
1: I hope that, I suppose the intention for this podcast, I should have said this at the beginning, the intention for the podcast is that in my day-to-day, you know, it's media. It's a bit like we're reflecting what happens in general practice. You know, like we say media, you know, the media is bad. They're doing this, they're doing that. And I just thought, well, actually, well, let's talk to somebody. Let's talk to somebody. Let's see their points of view let's have they got any tips that they can share? What can we do to kind of protect our own well-being? And you've done that. And I think that we got our own idea of where to get good sources of information from. And I think your advice around if we've not been involved in the story, we don't have to defend it, we don't have to comment on it. You know, when patients come to general practice there or they're in that PCN infrastructure, it's about the patient there. And trying not to let those negative voices in. So that was the intention around this podcast. I'm not a doctor, but I feel it. And it's really hard. You know, it affects my work because when things come out, it saps the morale, you know, people kind of close down and it makes people act in, you know, uncharacteristically, you know, they're really frustrated and they're really cheesed off. Yeah. So whatever role you are in, if you work, in primary care you are affected and I just thought it'd be a good opportunity to get a journalist on not all journalists are bad you know like it's, yeah it's I mean that. there's a
0: couple of there's a couple of points that I'd make as well I mean one is I don't think don't be afraid to work with engage with speak to journalists yeah they're not out to trick you trap you I think throughout COVID you know where would we be if we hadn't had all those health and science correspondents telling us the latest information i mean most health professionals were finding out about department of health kind of changes in policy through an nhs england changes in policy through the media
1: I that's think not that good health, is that good yeah but that's
0: nothing to do with the media there is it okay that's nhs england's decision or okay. the Department of Health decision, we were quite often finding out at the same time as everybody else through those televised press conferences what was happening. But I, I think there's been so much amazing coverage through COVID-19 from the specialist health correspondents. I think it's all too easy to get bogged down in a in kind of one story or one narrative that's really angered you and then just to think that that's all journalism and that's, you know, not the case at all. I think we'd all be much poorer for not having those really reliable information sources and journalists doing their job and holding power to account if there's one story that you think's been poorly managed or not being told in the right way that there's things you can do about that you can complain about that you can speak to journalists about that or you can just choose to ignore it you don't have to engage you don't have to let it
1: make you feel worse than you already do and if people want to connect with you where is the best place to find you
0: so on twitter i'm at emma journo my dms are open so if you want to she does Twitch respond me, yeah i do respond. <laughs> i do yeah okay um, and so yeah and there's more information about me in the twitter bio as well i'm I have a website at emma wilkinson.net
1: thank you so much you're welcome newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.